0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Welcome, everyone, to the Football Odyssey, part of the Sports History Network. This is your host, Aaron Harris. On today's episode, we welcome Phil Tuckett. Phil is the former Vice President of Special Projects at NFL Films. In this insightful interview, Phil reflects back on his days at NFL Films as one of the first employees hired by Ed Sable and takes me behind the scenes of some of the greatest NFL Films productions, including memorable stories involving Hank Stram, Dick Buckus, and Bum Phillips. If you enjoyed this interview, then feel free to subscribe and share. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter and Instagram And you can reach out to me directly at com or at SportsHistoryNetwork.com. And, as always, thank you for listening. So prior to becoming a director and a producer at NFL Films, you were actually a wide receiver for the San Diego Chargers back in the American Football League days, right?
1: I... I sure was, had started my football career at eight years old. And uh, I was the quintessential jockdom in front of anything else. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't that well-rounded as a human being. And part of it was because my my dad was so involved in my career. Uh, and he had been too small in high school to play football. And I think that he always had in mind uh, maybe going and getting a little reflected uh, enjoyment out of watching his son play. So one of my earliest earliest memories was out in the front yard uh, running out for passes. And I probably was only five or six. And then I started playing organized football at eight. I have to laugh now when, People say, you know, I don't want my son to play football until uh, he's in high school because, you know, it's too early to start. Well, my dad was kind of champing at the bit uh, to get me started as early as possible, and I was going right along with it. So I loved to uh, to play sports. I, I was a letter winner in high school and football, basketball and baseball and my whole life revolved around the three seasons and getting through one to get to the next. And then um, I, I wasn't uh, highly recruited out of high school. I had a chance to walk on at the University of Utah. Uh, I grew up in Salt Lake City, so I was kind of disappointed that they showed little interest in me. And then the same thing happened with BYU, which is uh, 40 miles south of Salt Lake. My dreams of playing uh, big-time collegiate sports, I'd I really concentrated on football by that time, didn't pan out. But I did get a scholarship to a junior college in the southern part of the state of Utah called Dixie Junior College. And my ego was flattered because the coach actually came to my home and sat with myself and my dad and offered a scholarship, a full scholarship, to go play football at Dixie Junior College. So I, of course, immediately accepted that. It wasn't until about two months later that I found out the scholarship consists of $25 for books and a job washing jock straps and t-shirts in the laundry uh, in the athletic department so but by that time I didn't care I had a uniform and a jersey you know I was I was on the team and I had a really good career there at Dixie for two years and the one thing I remember that kind of defined my career in junior college was I was an honorable mention all-american as a wide receiver my second year and the other uh, the other person in the backfield on that honorable mention team was O.J. Simpson. And he went to San Francisco City College. I'd never heard of him. But later on, I thought, well, OK, I must not have been too bad. I,
2: yeah, you're in good company. I, I, shared,
1: I shared the accolades with uh, O.J. And uh, then I got my coach in junior college, went to Weber State in Ogden, Utah as the head coach and i went up there and i get a finally got a full ride that was legitimate and played there for two years and had hopes to be drafted because uh, my career there was uh, even better than in junior college i was getting better at what i was learning to do but uh, i wasn't drafted you know the horrible experience of sitting with your family waiting for your name to be called and then it first day is over, and then the second day is over. And back then, they had 17 rounds in the draft. So you can imagine, when you get down to 12, 13, 14, and you have, haven't been yeah. picked, then it's almost like, do I really want to get picked? You know, Do I want to be the 17th round draft choice? And as it turned out, it was good I didn't get drafted because I got a better signing bonus because I could negotiate between two or three teams. And I went to San Diego. Now, during this whole time, having anything to do with film production never entered my mind. It it was just not even in my orbit as to how that could possibly happen. But I was able to have a a single moment of transcendence where uh, my life changed in an instant. My second year with the Chargers, we were training at the University of California, uh, Irvine. And I heard Sid Gilman, our head coach, yell out across the field, Hey, Ed Sable, Ed Sable, come over here. And I identified this gentleman, a very distinguished looking gentleman coming across the field. I had no idea what he did, except I'd seen his name on credits on TV, something to do with sports. Uh, I had a B.A. in English, so I had learned to write a little bit. And all I could think was, the guy has something to do with sports on television. And as luck would have it, I had an article published. I I wrote an article that was a diary of my rookie free agent season with the Chargers. And it was published in Sport Magazine. And you're too young to remember Sport Magazine, but I love that more than Sports Illustrated. Uh, Sports Illustrated was a little effete a for my taste. You know, sometimes they would have uh, sailing regattas on the cover and things like that. You know, I I, I was hardcore.
2: Right.
1: And, and uh, Sport Magazine was hardcore. They had these great color photos of the my heroes in baseball and football and basketball. And so what a thrill it was that I wrote this article with the help of the Chargers PAP, uh, PR director, Jerry Wynn, and he knew the the publisher back in New York of Sport magazine. And lo and behold, they published my article, first time published writer, call and they called it, they named, they had the naming rights, I guess, because they were the publisher. And it was called How I Won My Lightning Bolt. Mm. And it's a great photograph of me. And the title ended with a lightning bolt. And it came down and pointed to me sitting on the bench, which was my pro career. So it was perfect. (laughs) It said it all. Mm. And uh, so I had that magazine. And I just thought, I don't know who this guy is, except maybe he he would remember me when I looking for a job after my football career, and so I approached him boldly at lunchtime. I saw him sitting at the table with some of the coaches, and I kind of had to screw up my courage a bit because I didn't know this guy, and he didn't know me, and I, I thought maybe, you know, like asking the pretty girl to the dance so that you'd get rejected and your life would not be as nice as it was before you took that bold move. And I went up and I introduced myself. I said, I'm on the team. I'm on the chargers. And uh, I'm also a writer. And here's an article I wrote in Sport Magazine. And I had it opened to the beginning of the article. And it was in a a diary form. So the first day's uh, entry was prominent on the first page. And he looked at it and he read it for about 30 seconds Bam, he shut the magazine. and so then I did feel like the guy who had been rejected in in public because the coaches were also there, right. so uh you know I, uh, okay, I tried, but before I could leave the table, he said, "Well, you're wasting your time playing football. You're the first person I've ever met who's a football player who can write. I mean that's the most rare thing in the on the face of the earth." and i have a company it's called nfl films and if you can write and obviously you can from what i just read i will teach you to make movies about pro football no no problem at all i will pay you to learn to be a filmmaker and uh, it was just it, it was just such a uh cataclysmic moment because you know, I was hanging by my fingernails. i had been on the reserve cotton squad the previous season for all but one game. So I went, nobody really was paying that much attention to me, let alone uh, the last time I got recruited was when I went to JC. So I, I really, I thought he might be kidding. I thought he might be, you know, pulling my leg, as my dad used to say. And uh, I saw, and then I said, well, you know, I'm on the team. He says, yeah, you're on the team, but for how long? I don't know whether he had talked to the coach or what, but the way he said it was like, you know, come on, be honest with yourself. And and he says, how many years do you have as a pro football player? Two or three or four or five. And then you're going to have to find a profession. And I'm offering you a a profession. I'll pay you and train you to have a profession. And I guarantee you, you will make some good money you'll have fun doing it and you'll do it the rest of your life when you're an old man you'll still be doing it and you'd rather stay on the football team rather than come with me and have me give you all these things he was i found out later he was a real salesman and that's where he came from he was he was uh selling uh, raincoats uh, that his his father-in-law produced in philadelphia and he was a salesman through and through until he got sick of that and started NFL films. Uh, so I, that's a whole other story. The, the saga of Ed and Steve Sable, you know, uh, that, that's a whole other podcast.
0: Uh, that well, one. F- For him to give you that kind of praise about being a football player that can actually write, it has to speak volumes because Steve himself wrote when he was in college, too. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're someone that really had to stick out to him in order to really get that opportunity.
1: Well, Big Ed, we called him, but always behind his back. He was Mr. Sable when you addressed him directly. But Big Ed was a visionary. He wasn't a filmmaker. He didn't know how to make a film any more than Walt Disney knew how to draw a cartoon that was decent. But he was the visionary. And he had an instinct for this kind of stuff that, that was uncanny. So yeah, he saw right away that uh, I was kind of wasting my time playing football. But he could uh, he could make something out of me as a football uh, filmmaker, and that right from the start, that was the only thing Steve and Ed cared about is making football films. They had other opportunities to do uh, scripted films in Hollywood and everything else because they became so noteworthy. All they cared about was making football films. That was it. And so uh, he he saw some uh, beef on the hoof that he could make a steak out of. And uh, so I had to turn him down three times because he was very persistent. But, you know, to tell you the truth, what I was thinking is my dad would kill me if I walked away from being on the San Diego Chargers. I've worked my whole life and he's worked his whole life to have me be right here where I am right now. And so I really, I couldn't do it. It was, uh, and then plus I was kind of off balance a little bit because nobody was paying any attention to me or giving me any praise at all. And all of a sudden this guy was acting like, uh, and I was really something special. So I, I finally said, listen, I appreciate your, uh, Give me uh, your input and your enthusiasm for, for what I might represent to you. But I got to see this through. I got to keep playing as long as I can. So he handed me his card and said, "Either you call me when you're ready to come. But that being said, I need you now. Because in a month, the football season starts, and I want you in the lineup at NFL Films. I don't think they can offer you that here with the Chargers. So, you know, when I went back to the dorm, I was thinking, really, was that the right decision to make? I mean, the guy was so sure of. Uh, and, you know, back then there was no Internet, so I couldn't look him up to see if he even was. Legitimate. I, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. And so two weeks later, I got cut. And uh, Sid Gilman was from the Ohio uh, Mafia of Paul Brown. He came from that coaching tree. And every one of my found out since had the same uh, line for cutting a person. And that line was and probably still is with people from that lineage. That line was, we've decided to let you get on with what you're going to do the rest of your life. Like they're doing you a favor to fire you, right? Yeah, I guess it made him feel better somehow. But so I got the line, I turned in my playbook, and I called Ed Sable back in Philadelphia, and I worked for him for thirty-eight years. So,
0: that when was you the when you were writing your journal, were you planning Were you planning on publishing it at some point, like Lee Grosscup did, and a few other players from that time?
1: Well, Lee Grosskop was one of my heroes growing up in Salt Lake City. Uh, I didn't care about, you know, Otto Graham or, you know, Sid Luckman or, you know, uh, Bobby Lane, any of those guys. Lee Grosskop was our hero in Salt Lake City. And he lasted two or three seasons with the Giants. He wasn't dog meat, But uh, he and... I, I remember reading his book and so maybe somewhere in the back of my mind it, uh, it clicked in, but no, I would never have done it except I had a a part-time job that I got during the off season between my first and second year writing for a daily newspaper called the daily Californian, And, and, uh, so I, I was writing these feature articles. In fact, I, uh, I wrote a good one I was looking at the other day where I uh, reported on a game that uh, Bill Walton played in and he was a sophomore at a uh, high school there in San Diego. And I made the comment that he's a, a fine player, but he's already had two knee operations and his uh, knees will never last past high school. And of course he's Bill Walton. But so my prognostication was not that great, but uh, the, the PR guy for the Chargers saw my articles. And he says, "Hey, you're really a, a, a fine writer, a, a good sports writer." Did uh, it's, he says, "I should have found out about this sooner, and I would have had to had, would have suggested to you that you keep a diary of your season, because that year there was a diary published called Fourth and Goal." by Jerry Kramer of the of the Green Bay Packers, who led Bart Starr into the end zone in the famous chilling championship. And then, they wrote, and then he wrote, then a book was published of his diary from the season, which is probably not his diary, but who cares? <laughs> and also the fact that Jerry Wentz said, oh, I, I would have told you to keep a diary. And I said, well, I did. I did keep a diary. He says, well, let's hone it up. Down and, and I'll take it uh, back east because I'm going back to New York City and I'll I'll try and get Al Silverman to publish it in Sport Magazine. So I just went home and wrote the whole diary, like because <laughs> I had I had written a word about it. But uh,
0: it's like being in school trying to finish saying, everything. Yeah.
1: My wife kept saying, and she's honest to a fault. She kept saying, well you're pretending like you're writing this is happening." And how can you even remember a bunch of that stuff? So maybe it wasn't all exactly true, but it the, the essence was there. You know, it was true to the to conceptually to the what I went through. And so, if he hadn't suggested that, I never would have had the article, and I never would have even known what to ask Ed Seabrook. They just, you know, that's the way some. Seminal events happened in people's lives. I guess that everything came together.
0: Now, when you were with the Chargers, uh, was that when Gene, was that when Gene Klein was the uh, the owner? Yes, yeah. I'm he sure he. I'm sure he would have loved to have a book published while he was the uh, owner. Yeah, except I was uh,
1: kind of unknown, and I came in uh, as a free agent. So, you know, the one guy who, because in your own mind, just give me a chance, coach. The one guy who really had faith in me with the Chargers, Gilman, not so much because I wasn't fast enough. He was the passing guru of all time. And he just loved you. You ran a 40 in in a time that impressed him. And... That was all that counted. But the one guy who really saw that I was highly competitive and I had some football acumen, I would say, was uh, Bum Phillips, who was the defensive coordinator for Gilman. And we we, uh, remained friends for the rest of his life because once I went to NFL Films and he became head coach of the Houston Oilers, uh every year when we would sit down to have a story conference about uh, what what profile pieces we were going to do, the guy who was our head of production would write down at the top of the the bulletin board, uh, Bum Phillips' piece. And that always started it out, because every year we wanted to get a piece on Bum, he was such a character. Oh, and yeah. you couldn't go wrong. You just set up the camera and let him be Bump Phillips.
2: Very quotable guy.
1: So he was the defensive coordinator. He told me years later that he went to Gilman and said, you're wasting uh, this kid, Phil Tuckett. I mean, he. if you don't want him, if you're not going to play him, if you may just let him rot on the reserve squad, give him to me and I'll turn him into a free safety. He's plenty fast enough to, to be an excellent defensive back in my system. And the one thing that I don't even know if Gilman ever recognized this, but I was a hellacious blocker because right from the start of my career, I knew that that's one way I could catch the attention of a coach, a wide receiver who could block and actually loved it. And, uh, you know, delivered a few snot bubblers, we call them, you know, or he hit somebody so hard. A little bubble of snot comes out of their nostril, and I did that enough in practice that uh Bum Phillips saw that that was uh, the makings of a defensive back but uh the other revealing story about uh Gilman's attitude towards me was that after I'd been at nFL films and really was enjoying it and found my life's work you know it was one of those things I walked in and said okay this is exactly what he said this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life so let me get started and so two or three months later I called a friend of mine who was still on the staff uh, with the chargers and we were talking and what's going on and people, people we both know and he said uh do you know that uh Ed Sable got you cut off the team I said, what? Really? He said, yeah, I was in the coach's room, and Ed Sable came in and said to Gilman, you need to cut this guy Tuckett because I I need him to come back. I'm going to make something out of him, and uh, he's wasting his time here. So unless you really need him, uh, as a favor to me, will you cut him? And so Gilman said he would, and he didn't take that long to decide either. So, uh, I don't know, it kind of pissed me off, and it it, uh, made me a little angry, and it made me a little embarrassed for myself, like I could be thrown out so casually. And then I just thought, well, if I had the chance to go back and do it over again, would I? And the answer was no. I was where I wanted to be. I was making a start on something that was bigger than, uh, whether you, your body holds up as a football player. And, uh, but I didn't say anything to Ed Sable about it. I wanted to, you know, pick the right spot and, and, and make sure that, uh, I wasn't doing something that was going to hurt my career at NFL films, but you know, we were, he, he was like, uh, uh, the, the all time, uh, Hale fellow, well met, uh, locker room jock, strap talk guy, you know. So if he was ragging on you, that means he liked you, and he would say really crude and rude, horrible things to you. But that's how you knew he liked you. You know, it's it's an athletic thing. I don't know if in the real world, especially nowadays in PC, if you can get away with that. But certainly, we, uh, I understood. Where he was coming from, because that's the way we talked in the locker room. And uh, so I got to know him well enough, and I was solid enough in my position that he made some crack about, uh, uh, you know, how long do you have to wear those pants before you win win the bet or something? And I said, I said, well, you know what? My pants may be ugly, but at least I've never gotten anybody fired from their job. Mm. Whoa. He stopped in his tracks. He said, what do you mean by that? Well, you got me cut from the charger. You went in and told Gilman to cut me. You know, my career went down the toilet because you got me cut. I did not. That is such bullshit. And he got so angry that I knew it was true. You know, if uh, somebody complains and makes too many uh, excuses, about not doing something, you pretty well know they've done it. And so that was kind of a running gag for the rest of the time I was there. Whenever he would get a little out of control with his uh, outrageous comments, I would say, well, you know, I, at least I know that I've never gotten anybody fired off their job.
0: It just,
2: you- just stop him.
0: But you must have, did you feel like uh, any sort of flattery at all when Sid Gilman told you that you were cut and you found out that Ed was the one that facilitated that because you had a guy that came to you three different times to recruit your yeah. friend of those films?
1: Oh, I understood the concept. And uh, he, he was looking out for his company. It was still kind of a little, little company at the time. Uh, I was the 10th person hired. And when I left 38 years later, uh, we had 480 full-time people. Uh, That's been reduced substantially uh, through the regime of Roger Goodell. Uh. I've already gotten myself in, in Dutch with the people I know still at NFL films because of my attitude about that. So that I'll just leave it at that, that, For 38 years it was great and then he took over and it wasn't great anymore and I couldn't go to work and work for the people that he brought in to run the company. But back at that point, there were 10 of us. So every one of us did everything and I learned how to write, direct, edit, uh, uh, select music for my pieces, uh, produce pieces shoot a camera. It was fun. It was like uh, you're in a frat house and somebody gives you $400,000 worth of camera equipment to play around with. And uh, and then we all love football. So the subject matter was something that I, I guess if I went to learn how to make movies and then they told me to make a movie about uh, uh, the, uh, space program or something i I might not have caught on as quickly but i knew the subject matter and i knew that i would really enjoy the process of working with the subject matter and making films so it was mother's milk to me i started out like uh, i had been on a trajectory to end up there my whole life
0: and did did playing professional football do you think gave you an advantage when you were shooting, like you knew certain parts of the field that you really wanted Uh, to capture?
1: Yeah, certainly. Uh, Numerous times I just used what I knew of, uh, let's say football behavior. It's not even like, oh, you're guessing that things happening. It's like Tony Romo on television. Everybody oh, he even said what was going to happen. Well, he's a quarterback. You know how many uh, meetings he was in where they were game planning and strategizing and trying to decide what happens next? Yeah. I mean, that's that's not even surprising. That uh, it, I, I guess the only thing is, if you can put up with the network executives that you have to work with, uh, any quarterback, I think, could do a similar kind of thing. But as a cameraman... I knew where to be, and very often, more often than not, more than 50% of the time, I was in position to catch what was going to happen next. And uh, I, I didn't even have to think about it. I'd been on the sidelines my whole career, uh, watching football from the sidelines. I knew how to follow the ball. I knew how to follow the play. Uh, that, that's really a difficult thing to teach somebody, even if they're a good cameraman. Things happen so fast; you almost have to have a uh, an instinct for where the ball's going and what's going to happen next. Uh, I guess the prime example of that was there was a play in uh, in a uh, a playoff game in Pittsburgh during their rule and reign at the top, and they were playing the Oilers. My uh, my buddy. Bums team, and Mike Renfro, a a wide receiver for the Oilers, uh, caught a pass in the end zone. And at that time, everybody that shot the game was on one side of the field. He had the main camera up in the press box, and then everybody had to be on that sideline of the main camera uh, because the people who decided... This is the way you're going to shoot football games. But if you had cameras on both sides of the field, it would be very confusing. At one point, they'd be going one way, another point, they'd be going another way. I just thought, what the heck, the way we cut the games together, nobody is following continuity that way. So I spent, you know, maybe uh, half the game on the side of the field away from the press box. And not once did I ever say, oh, I wish I would have been on the other side because it didn't matter. You needed to be where the action was going to happen. So I went in the far side corner of the end zone, away from the press box, and uh, Mike Renfro uh, juggled the ball as he was going out of bounds. You couldn't see it from the other side of the field. There was no instant replay there. The ball came over his shoulder. His back was to the main camera and television didn't have any cameras on the other side of the field. So it looked like a touchdown pass because he ball came into his hands in the corner of the end zone. And when he turned around, the ball was in his possession. But I, my shot showed that he was juggling the ball as he went out of bounds. And that was one of the early calls for instant replay because that cost the Oilers uh, uh, or that, yeah, that cost the Oilers uh, or it gave the Oilers a chance to win the game when really it wasn't a valid catch. And actually bum was kind of angry with me afterwards because I had revealed the fact that he didn't really catch the ball. But uh, they, that's when the call went out. And they called it the Renfro rule for a long time. Let's Because of that Renfro play, let's have cameras on the other side of the field and let's use them uh, to review plays that uh, you can't see with the naked eye when they're first happening. And that was strictly an instinct call on my part I knew Bum's offense. I knew what had been happening in the game. And I knew that if they were going to go to the corner, it would happen in the far corner away from the press box. So that kind of stuff happened over and over. And uh, Big Ed would walk up and down the hallways bragging about the fact that he found me and I had, you know, I was clairvoyant and I knew what was going to happen next. <laughs> and uh, uh, it was really just because I'd been playing football my whole life And, and those things were common to me and and they came to me and I paid attention to what I was being told by my instinct.
0: And, And do you think that those kind of, um, those, those instincts help you when you want to find that shots away from the ball that maybe not aren't, they're not maybe following what everybody wants to see, but you yourself know that what's happening away from the ball can be just as exciting as to what's happening around it. Oh yeah,
1: I, I, uh, through my career as a cameraman, I started out, you know, following action and was good at it, but I got more and more interested in the, in the selected detail of the minutiae. And I started adding millimeters to my lenses that I was shooting until, uh, I became the cameraman known at for. Uh, shooting elbows and eyeballs, because I wanted to see inside the helmet, I wanted to see down the line of scrimmage, and I wanted to use the camera to show the audience something that they would never see otherwise. You know a wide shot for t v coverage would give you that, so I got closer and closer and closer until uh, uh what I contributed to the over of uh, NFL films is that extreme close-up look of the telephoto lens. I started out on a little uh, tripod that I put on the ground, so I had a low angle, and I got frustrated with that. So I finally found a rig that I could hand hold a 600 millimeter lens, and. uh, I don't know how I did it. Now that I'm 75, I probably couldn't because it was heavy. But uh, back then, I was in great shape, and and I just I would shoot in slow motion, and so even though I was handheld, it would take the jerkiness out of it. And then once the action started, then you don't even notice that it's moving a little bit. So I would fought, I, I would get shots that would amaze the other cameramen because they had never conceived of such a shot, uh, and I enjoyed that. That was my, uh, towards the end of my career, that was my claim to fame as I pioneered the use of super uh, tight lenses from 600 millimeter to 1,000.
0: It, what was something that when you first started production, because you had a background as a writer, but when you start, started getting into the producing and the directing end of it, what part of filmmaking was the hardest for you to grasp?
1: I think I uh, I embraced uh, and and the new things that would come up that I hadn't done before. I remember I just started learning how to edit a little bit, and that was when. You'd take two pieces of film and splice them together with a piece of mylar tape. I mean, uh, when I, <laughs> yeah, when I uh, talk to my students now, I say, uh, okay, now we're talking about. We're not talking about a Ferrari. We're talking about a covered wagon. This <laughs> is the way we used to have it, and even that I love, and I still love it to this day. Being alone in a room with your thoughts and and no pattern to follow. Except what's in your own mind as uh, what you need to tell the story. But one moment of transcendence was I got done with a film, one of my first films, and then our head of production said, okay, go in and, and select the music for the film. Even though I had edited this whole film and shot footage for it and directed the interviews and everything, It didn't dawn on me that I got to select the music. You got to be shitting me! Now I'm going to go in and look at all this music and and get to pick the ones that go in because I've always loved music of all types. And I it had dawned on me that much of my life up to that point, I could remember so distinctly times when I was hearing a piece of music from a radio or from a PA system, and, and the situation I was in was scored by that piece of music. That was I would recognize it immediately and remember it. And so now I got to edit all these images together and then pick the music that went along with it. I never got over the thrill of doing that, and I still haven't. We're just uh, completing a student film about a... Uh, A guy from a little town in Utah who devoted his life to the blues, to the Mississippi Delta Blues, and is one of the most renowned uh, blues uh, harmonica players in the United States. And uh, so all his heroes were the early blues singers and players and. uh, We're having so much fun, me and my students, because I say, okay. What kind of music should we put in here? And I give and I help inculcate in them a love for marrying the music to the image and the voice. And so I, I can't think of one thing. I thought, well, that's kind of drudgery. I I would prefer not to do that. I mean, it's all it's all difficult to do right. There's thousands of variables that you have to be aware of, and it's amazing anything ever works out because, it's you know, I've had films that after I finished them, I look at them and I realize that I started the narration 10 frames too soon and I spoiled the moment for those 10 frames. And then when you talk about an hour movie, how many times do you screw up and take away what would have been the optimum? So That's what Big Ed was talking about, that you'll do it the rest of your life. Without saying it to me, I realize now what he was saying is you'll never be able to be as good as you want to be. But you'll always continually get better if you love it, if you have the fire in your belly to do it. And so now when I make the film, this blues film is one of the best things I've ever done. It, and the students helping with it and me helping them because i know so much more i've made so many mistakes i've made so many just oh just missed it by a hair and i've learned from those things and as long as i can see and hear uh, i'm going to be making movies because i haven't made my best one yet that's what he was talking about and so you won't have to play golf you won't have to play dominoes in the park you know you'll keep doing this because you'll keep getting better at it and uh and that's absolutely true so i would say whatever i would think is oh this is kind of drudgery then i'm just i just haven't done it right yet i haven't done it with the degree of uh, skill that would allow me to to be proficient in it so Uh, That's what I teach my students, too, and I don't know how many of them believe me that uh, I'm just as enthusiastic about doing what I do now, probably more so, than I was in the beginning.
0: Well, When you get to work at a company that has 10 employees starting off, that really gives you the chance to really get your toes wet in every department. You know, yeah. you, you really get a chance to figure out what you really like and what you need to work on. And then as you progress forward, you you what you were really enjoyed, you became adept, at, and then you get more passion for some of the things that you've been working towards improving on.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, it's hard to describe it to most people who have had careers where they did the job, uh, a lot of times just because they had to do it to support their themselves and their families and we would go to work and it was like a like a playground i could, i'd be in my office uh, uh researching some material and over the intercom system would come okay uh, clarion players meet in the back alleyway and we'd go rushing out there because that was our uh what they call in the in feature films foley, where you record sounds to then put over the finished film and mix of the men and the Clarion Clarion street was an alley behind our facility in Philadelphia. And so we got to go out there and pretend we were football players and yell and scream and, and, and act like we'd ha- got our knee blown up and scream into the, in the microphone. And it was somebody who was working on a film that needed some voices. And all of a sudden 20 people were out there uh, running up and down the alley. I don't know what the neighbors thought, but uh, uh, it was it was fun. It was like every day, let's go do some fun stuff at the office. Uh, I, I feel badly for people that haven't had that experience in their profession, you know, because that's, in a way, that's what every profession should be. It should, uh, you know, incorporate, well, hard work, but also play
0: do you remember the first assignment you ever worked on for ed
1: yes uh so before i i called him out on on getting me fired he well actually it was just like a couple of weeks after i got there i didn't really know what i was doing except i was excited to start to learn and he came to me and he said i want you uh for the cbs pregame show to do research on all the hardest hits from last football season, and you know uh, people really love that when you do a montage of of the hard hits, the snot bubblers and clotheslines, and you know, and back then you know nobody was going to call you a a monster for admitting the fact that people watch football for the violence, right? Yeah. Violence was part of our job. So, and I had been a player, you know, I, the crap kicked out of me plenty of times. So uh, I knew what a hard hit was. And, uh, but I was so new that I probably 10 times longer on that piece because it was my first assignment. And also I didn't know what I was doing. But just to try and gather all these shots together. And so then I had them all. And I thought, how can I really impress Ed Sable? Because he's the only one I cared about at that point. And Steve was around, but you know he was the boss's son, and I didn't know him as well. Mm-hmm. But here's the guy who hired me, and he gave me this assignment, so I'm going to blow him away. So I thought, i got to do something different to distinguish myself. And so my brother... It was in Washington, D.C., and he was a professional bluegrass musician for a group called Country Ham. And uh, I thought, what if I put together all the hard hits, then I have his band come up and record a soundtrack to it where every time somebody gets hit, something in the music uh, syncs up with that hit. And uh, so I called him, oh, yeah. That'd be fun. We'll do it. And I didn't ask anybody about this. I just, well, I asked him, how do I record something? You know, I didn't want anybody to know until I was done. Part of it was I thought maybe it would be a failure and that nobody would know I tried it. But uh, so he came up and sure enough, I had five minutes of hellacious hits. Uh, Every one of these hits would get a player uh, banned for the season, if not life today. But back then, I don't remember any of them even having a flag. I don't think any of them were flagged.
2: And so I had
1: five minutes of that, you know, ultra violence, uh, you know, kind of like the clockwork orange of, uh, of football. Right. And, And then I came up with this idea to call it the Blue Ridge Mountain Rack Up. So these guys getting all racked up by these hits, and uh, we recorded and we put it together. And I showed it to to Big Ed. He said, "Oh, that's great." He says, "I love that. Let me see it again." So I was feeling good, and it was on television on CBS during one of their pregame shows. And uh, on Monday there were a couple of guys there amongst the 10 people who were a little jealous of the fact that Big Ed kept brag- bragging about me all the time because he had hired me. And so they, this guy was really completely okay with uh, trying to make me feel like crap. So he showed me uh, a review of that particular piece in the New York Times. And it was an old dog sports writer uh Oh, I can't remember his name now, but he was like uh, an old school. And plus he was in the New York Times. So he was very much uh, entitled, you know, whatever he thought right. was gospel. So he wrote this article and he said, I was appalled yesterday that the NFL and NFL films foisted a uh, ultra violent piece on the American audience and these were all cheap shots. They were dirty hits. they It was embarrassing to see those all, all together at one time. And the league thought it was okay to do that. And they just ripped the league and NFL films for producing this piece. And I'm the one who did it. I didn't even ask anybody's permission. So I'm sitting there thinking, oh, everything was going so good. and Now I'm going to get fired. And then I, Ed came into my office, and then he walked around the corner and he said, Phil Tuckett, I love you. And he (laughs) came over and embraced me in this big barrack. I'm not for sure this happened, but it seems to me he lifted me off off the ground. My feet were dangling there because he's a big, strong, tall guy. And I said, yeah, but the guy hated it. He said, it doesn't matter. That's the first time we've ever been mentioned in the New York Times. I don't care whether you hate it. He doesn't even know what he's talking about. He's an old coot. Time has passed him by. I <laughs> care less what he thinks. <laughs> so I went from uh despair to exaltation, and that was my first piece so uh you know, I had some failures in between that and thirty eight years later, but uh mostly it was just a bunch of fun and 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 good results
0: when you talk about how some some hits back then would get people suspended today earlier i was watching a a raiders game from the early 80s and even at even at that point you're watching almost two different games when you're watching a game from back then as opposed to like in a couple days when you watch the super bowl it really is just a whole different world but that's what's so great about going back and that's why i love nfl films and watching like the old footage because you just get to see um such a cinematic way of how the game was played back then well yeah i
1: mean there's something to be said for what's been lost but in our society that doesn't matter it's are you uh are you presenting yourself in the proper way that society expects you to right. present the material today, but you still have great athletes. You know, you, Patrick Mahomes uh, can still rise uh, and, and be brilliant. So uh, it's still a great game. It's just too bad. And the Blue Ridge mountain rack up, we all have that forever. So if we want to really delve into the, to the so-called dirty play and uh, ultra violence, uh, that'll always exist.
0: What was the other video, uh, Search and Destroy?
1: Yeah, that was that was about uh, linebackers.
0: Yeah, I like that one too.
1: Yeah, that was good. And then we did a piece on uh, on Dick Butkus, and uh, he was the one guy that everybody had talked to back when he played the other players were afraid of him because he was so, so vicious and, and your head was on a swivel all the time. One guy told me because he would hit you 10 yards downfield just as the whistle was blowing. So you you were never safe when Butkus was on the field. And so we were going to do an ultraviolet violence piece on Dick Butkus and all his shots. And we definitely had them. So we. Uh, flew him into Philadelphia. That's when our offices were still on Vine Street in Philadelphia. And uh, Steve and I and a uh, cameraman decided we were going to grill him and try to try to get him to say some outrageous stuff about uh, his philosophy of of violence. And he came, and he was just so uh, calm and charming and uh, erudite. I mean he wasn't Dick Butkus. Come on. Come on, be a mean spirited prick. What's wrong with you? We didn't bring you here we didn't pay for your plane ticket so you could be a nice guy.
2: Yeah. And
1: so after about a half an hour, uh we took a little break and I went in the other room to Steve and Steve said, We gotta get this guy drunk. <laughs> uh, he, he is two together uh to get the stuff we need. So we went out to dinner at Bookbinder's a, eatery there, a fish place in Philly and he got ripped, roared and snorted and we came back and and he sat down and then he was Dick Butkus and he was so Dick Butkus it was unbelievable. Uh, Steve asked him and he said uh, have you ever uh, wanted to do something on the field uh, to show how vicious you, you could be and it hasn't really happened yet and he said well you know I like that movie, Hush, Hush, Sweet Charlotte, with Betty Davis. And when that, hair, that head came rolling down the stairs, I thought, that would be good to do in a game sometime. <laughs> <laughs> so then we afterwards we said, well, did we go too far with that one? But we put it in, and obviously it was exaggeration for effect and tongue-in-cheek. But it was Dick Butkus that was saying that, and it meant something. So... Uh, that's what I mean about fun. How could you have more fun than that? Hanging out with Dick Butkus and getting him to say outrageous things on camera.
0: I was watching um a clip yesterday and he was mic'd up. It was his last season and they're doing the coin toss and they're all shaking hands and as they're jogging off he just says under his breath about the other team, assholes.
1: Yeah, assholes, you assholes. Yeah. yeah. yeah we we did that wiring and it was in a preseason game. We had to talk him into it because you know, there's this thing about, uh, the inner sanctum, you know, and you know, I don't want anybody getting in my private space, but we finally talked him into it and he was great as we knew he would be. Uh, and actually NFL films was the first organization to ever wire a player. And that's just become omnipresent. Now, so many things that we did first now everybody does, uh, that's why it was hurtful when NFL films was put on the sidelines by the NFL network, because uh, we deserve better than that because of what we contributed to the game and all of the innovation that we've contributed that caused people to become football fans at an early age and, and never lose that love. Uh, so, you know, we, we had some great wirings, uh, did you remember Abe Gibron? He was the coach of the Chicago Bears. Uh, and he was a George Halas guy, a foul-mouthed, uh, eccentric, uh, you know, out-of-control kind of guy. We couldn't use half of the stuff we got, but it was hilarious. And then uh, you probably have heard of the one we did with Hank Strand, Head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs. That was in a Super Bowl, and if you haven't looked that up on the internet, because he was he was the best wiring we've ever had. Because usually you get like ten or twelve good minutes. We had forty minutes of nonstop uh, one-liners.
0: We found out
1: later that he had a buddy in L.A. that was a, a joke writer for. Uh, Henny Youngman or one of those guys, okay. and he'd written him a script to take on the sidelines during the Super Bowl to deliver these lines that he knew that would be picked up by the by the microphone, and then we would edit together as though <laughs> it was spontaneous. So, if but if you look closely, there are a couple of times where he's it's uh, it's a, a timeout, and he'll look down and his uh, clipboard, like he's looking at a play, but really he's finding one of these lines to deliver. And then all of a sudden he yells, uh, you guys look like a Chinese fire drill out there. Everybody, <laughs> all his players are looking around like, oh, the coach has lost his grip. It's a timeout.
0: And this is during the but Super Bowl?
1: It was during the Super Bowl, and that's what made it such a classic. But it was uh, not because we did it, but it was fabricated uh, quite outrageously by Hank himself. And he was a real uh, uh, camera hog kind of guy who loved being on camera. And here I am in the Super Bowl. I'm going to make the most of it. I don't know if I can think of anything clever to say, but this my buddy can feed me some lines.
0: <laughs> was that the first time you ever met him? Uh, no, we
1: he was a a uh, uh, good friend of Big Ed's. He, whenever he was in the East, he would come down and hang out. And, you know, uh, really an interesting guy to be around and smart. And uh, unlike a lot of coaches, he had interests outside the game of football. And so he would sit around and talk about uh, Magellan and, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, the equations in uh, – in math that he remembers that he uses in his game plans. That was all BS too, but it was interesting to hear a coach that could do more than just talk X's and O's. And he, he was really that guy. We loved him and he loved us.
0: <laughs> yeah. Listening to him. I mean, he he's definitely one of the most quotable coaches of all time. I mean, whenever NFL does like the uh, like those top 10 shows, yeah. Sometimes I'll add like one of his lines as like a sound effect or anything like that. But
1: well, yeah. those those are the ones from the Super Bowl because that that was the classic. Uh, uh, let's uh, one of them was uh, let's matric- matriculate, let's matriculate, matriculate. No, what is it? Matriculate, matriculate the ball up the field. Uh, he had written that line because matriculation meant. To be able to accomplish something, but it was a big word that football coaches don't use that often. So he was—he uh, was a classic. Uh, we, as was Bum, you know we we wired Bum for a few games, and uh, I just loved him so much. Right from the time I met him, and he treated me like a human being when I was on the, the bottom of the ladder with the Chargers. And our relationship was, was so strong that when I came here to, you know, I kept in touch with him. But when I was teaching here, one day I was out in the middle of nowhere uh, in a little town in Nevada, and my phone rang, and it was his wife. And he said, Coach is, uh, is probably not going to survive the night. So he just gave me a list of the people he wanted to talk to before he died. And I was on that list. And I sat there and uh, had a wonderful five minute conversation with a person that had meant so much to me in my life. Uh, Very meaningful. That's the kind of person he was. And uh, so, you know, you don't walk away from a career with doing things with people like that. You try and capture it and keep it and uh I guess I need to write a book sometime, but uh too busy. You know, uh, I thought about it and then I thought ah, you know, I'm still making movies, I'm still teaching the students. See maybe if, I wanna wait a few years.
0: You gotta make this happen because I, I think NFL Films has such a unique history because the only book I've seen read really on NFL films is uh Keepers of the Flame by yeah. uh Travis Vogan. I think you were mentioned in the book. Um it's a good book, but I would love to hear the stories like you're telling me about Hank Stram, like having like a joke writer giving like 21 liners yeah. to read during a Super Bowl like that. You have like such a view of the NFL that no one else, I think, is going to be able to to discuss or replicate.
1: Well, and and I, you know, I don't have any relationship with any of those people now anymore uh, to, to to be damaged by telling the truth. And I wouldn't mind doing that because the people who who uh, broke the the uh, company apart, uh, did so in such a heavy-handed, callous way, they don't deserve to just go scot-free. Somebody needs to call them on it because they did the wrong thing. Maybe it was a great business decision. That's fine. But you don't have to be uh, cold-hearted and, and uh, callous about it like they were. They they did it like we had meant nothing to the league, in my opinion. So, I think they deserve to be called on the carpet. Uh, I just don't have time to do it right now.
0: How how was it that things changed once NFL Network came into the picture?
1: It was just uh, Goodell brought in people from ESPN to try and replicate SportsCenter, but uh, strictly on the football basis and it didn't have anything to do with uh, the way we had done business all those years. And so, uh,
2: and,
1: and I don't want, you know, I hesitate saying anything because I don't want it to be like sour grapes. Right. Like uh, some old fart, you know, remembering the glory days or something. Uh, it was just, it was done in a cold hearted, uh, method. And, uh, all I would say is to me, that's Roger Goodell's MO. And, uh, he certainly exercised that part of his personality in, uh, tearing down what we'd built up. And, and then, you know, I got criticized like, well, you're not here anymore. Why are you shooting your mouth off? Yeah, but I was there when there were only ten people, and then I worked for thirty-eight years to build it. Don't you think I have the right to be disappointed in the way it ended? You know, I I paid my dues. I'm not some guy who came in for three years and and now I'm going out and revealing all the secrets. I I have the right.
0: And you're voicing for what you're, it is. You're voicing your opinion whenever you're asked. Yeah. Uh,
1: so maybe I'll do that sometime, maybe not, because uh, I I still am so busy with the actual uh, making of films that the writing part of it is strictly reserved for scripts and voiceovers and and treatments and screenplays and all the stuff we do.
0: Well, one film of yours that I really loved was Football America. And for me, I think it's probably the best football documentary that I've seen. And the reason why I loved it was because you were able to take this collection of really um, obscure and underserved stories, like about the football team Juno, Alaska, and like the uh, pickup games that are played inside a prison. Can you give me a little bit of a, a background about how you came up with that idea and what it was like to produce something like that? Well, uh, I felt that sometimes we're in danger of uh,
1: creating a cliche of what NFL films did by doing the same thing over and over too often too often repeating ourselves and i know why we did it is because it worked you know it it uh it was uh, effective so why stop doing what you're do- you're doing but i also very early on thought oh there's such a great setup here a great production company And my love was in making the movies uh, not exclusively doing the same type of movie over and over again. And so I I got Steve Sable to allow me to become uh, kind of an independent producer for other stories. Uh, They called it Special Projects and I was the VP of Special Projects. If I could sell a film, even if it was non-football related, then we would produce it during the off-season when we had time. So uh, I produced and directed films for uh, the History Channel, for TNT. I did music videos. Uh, I did almost 100 uh, music projects that were either on MTV or uh, long-form documentaries about musical groups. And that all energized me to go back to football. But it also made me think about a different approach to take. Uh, One of the things I did, I suggested to Steve, and he liked the idea, was a film called Autumn Ritual, uh, which was a group of interviews with people who had nothing to do with football, just talking about the phenomenon of America's obsession with football. And so interviewed the beat poet, Allen Ginsberg, and uh, uh, Jerry Falwell, and uh, Bill Blass, and uh, the minimalist composer, uh, Philip Glass. It's, it's kind of a wild film called uh, Autumn Ritual. And uh, until recently, I used to get calls from people who would see it at 3 o'clock in the morning on reruns on ESPN. Because it's a very bizarre film. Nobody will ever make a football film like Autumn Ritual again. But uh, thats I'm just always thinking about ideas that could be uh, a little bit different and changing up what we uh, were known for. And so because of my background in uh, Little League football and high school and Junior college, you know, off the beaten track. And why why not do a whole film about the grassroots appeal of the game? That you start out with the Super Bowl, and the panoply of here's the greatest moment in sports. But then the whole film after that is these stories of people that play football that nobody even knows about or, or recognizes, and yet uh, their passion in many cases uh, equals or exceeds the passion that pro football players play with. And so we just started writing down all the different ways football is played, prison football, uh, six man football. Uh, We found the oldest living tackle football player, uh, in a semi pro league. Uh, all of these things we ended up with, uh, so many good ideas, we couldn't really even do them all and cram them into one film. But uh, that was my one stipulation. And actually, uh, I produced it and I directed several of the segments, but this was a great uh, film for the, the whole company because there were probably five other producers who took different sections and put their special take on that particular section. And then we joined them all together. So, uh, you know, I'm very proud of that film because it uh, it looked at football in a completely different way, but came to the same conclusions. And so uh, we, we, uh, we were proud of it uh, when it was completed. I don't know if they were as proud of Autumn Ritual because it was too bizarre. <laughs> But, that, but So I went out on the edge of Autumn Ritual and then I brought it back a little bit with uh, Football America and that was highly successful and we won uh, two or three Emmys for, for that particular film.
0: Yeah, the moment i i watched it i really identified with it because something i want to do with this show is to kind of look at football from all vantage points you know for you like you said you went from the super bowl all the way down to the grassroots of being played in prisons or a semi-pro football player that's approaching his 60s you get these really unique stories that you otherwise wouldn't hear about unless you were reading like the local newspaper
1: yeah my uh my wife for for a period of time well we were married when I was in junior college and we've been married 55 years. So she's a lifer. Yes. I guess so am I, but, uh, she, she was always a little concerned that my obsession with my job. And, uh, so when the kids got older, they were in school all day. She went back to school herself and got a degree in film. And so then she worked with me on that film as my, uh, production coordinator making all the arrangements to go to all these different places and and she she personally won an Emmy for that. Uh the only bad thing is once she got the Emmy at the Marriott Hotel in New York City, she said, This is too hard, I'm quitting. And <laughs> somebody needs to be home because all these things need to be done. So she's gotten one Emmy and uh which she's very proud of, and she should be. But it was, uh, it was, you know, something that obsessed both of us at that point. And so, whenever we're driving around, and we see an interesting football field, we want to go film it, even though it's long past being able to be used anywhere. Because that's what we did. Whenever we visited these places, we would look on the map and see is there a football field at the edge of a coal mine, yeah. you know, and, and then we'd go over there with a the camera and get shots. And uh, we haven't gotten that out of our system. It's so uh, the variety is endless. And I guess that right there tells a story. You know, if it wasn't something that resonated with people on every level, then they wouldn't have the places to exhibit that. Passion, and uh, that's what football America was all about. Uh, I don't know. I I, I kind of it has a special meaning to me because I did it with my wife, and uh, and of course there was all the other people at NFL Films. And whenever you do something that's a success, uh, people come out of the woodwork to take credit for it. And you're saying, wait a minute, I didn't really see that person. At all when we were actually producing it, but okay, you know, yeah. whatever.
0: <laughs> well, kudos to your wife for going out on top. It takes yeah. a lot of discipline to do that.
1: That I, 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 was so shocked that one snuck up on me completely because uh, I guess my personality is, hey, I want, I want an Emmy, I want to win twenty more. So, uh, but, but it was best uh, for our domestic situation. And, uh, but she's always, she's always understood what I do more since she went through that experience, you know, where you don't, you don't have a job like this and you just, uh, say, okay, uh, it's five 30. I'm done. I'll see you tomorrow. You know, it never, it never works out like that and it shouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want it to. I don't know what I would do in that situation. I don't know how to handle it.
0: Do you remember any of the ideas that didn't make it into the final cut of the documentary?
1: Uh, we, we started into a thing about uh, going to Europe. Uh, we, you know, there are some of these American football leagues that exist in foreign countries. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they were almost like uh, little club situations, you know. It didn't it didn't rise to the level of a populace who's uh, completely immersed in in a, an idea. And plus the fact we love the fact that the only place it is that popular is in America. You right. Know, you can't go anywhere else. And they say, oh, people will go see it in in England but they're not out there playing football on Friday nights, you know, with the young kids. So, uh, that was kind of one that we, we thought about and then, uh, we just put that to the side and thought, yeah, this is football America. This is the grassroots of the game in America. And we got a lot of, uh, kind of harebrained off the wall ideas about, uh, you know, uh, some little town in the middle of nowhere where they they've invented a game that started out as football and turned into something else. It was just, it it was too divergent. You know, it it would have been, we would have put it with in with any of those other things and it would have, uh, seemed kind of silly and, and we're trying too hard. And we had plenty, we had plenty, uh, We had to cut down within each one of the sections to get it into to one show, and then I think the company uh, started a series. It was after I left, called Football America, where they took a lot of the the stories that had been shot for other purposes Mm -hmm. and tried to put it under the same banner. But the unifying nature of uh, you know the music and the cinematography and the narration uh, it it it, uh, it all. Uh, fit together so well in a one-hour film that uh, have an episodic like that you you kind of lose the the, the through line i and agree mm-hmm. the story that goes all the way through so sometimes you know i can identify with people in uh, scripted film who don't want to do a sequel because they've said what they wanted to say and it would be smirch it somehow to try and, you know, take it beyond that. Uh, I guess you can say that about the people with breaking bad or something, but uh, you know, as I understand it, the guy who did that, he wrote a script for all eight seasons that actually happened. And so he made a unified movie and that's why it's so successful. It's a one long movie. It's a, 12 hour, no more than that, it's like 25 hour movie. If you watched it start to finish, it would all flow together. But to stop the story and then have a sequel that then picks it up again, uh, I can understand why somebody would say, you know, I mess with a good thing. Well, Except well, if that, somebody gave you a lot of money, I guess you would. But.
0: Well, that's why you have so many remakes today, right? Yeah. Well listening to the the story about like the small town that created their own game out of football sounds like that would have been good for uh, autumn ritual
1: yeah that that is, I, that crossed my mind is where were you when I needed you from <laughs>
0: <laughs> Have you ever done any research when you were at NFL films about football in Japan? yeah,
1: I've been to japan uh four times uh and we the first three were with when they used to have n f l games over there i get they've stopped it for whatever reason i don't know but uh i i just you know i what i felt was it uh it was strange that it didn't it didn't resonate like baseball did in Japan, you know, Western sport, it, for some reason, it didn't capture that imagination. And that's probably at the heart of what, uh, why only in America is this uh, has a devoted following. And I don't know, I'll send you a copy of autumn ritual because I asked that question. Why do Americans like this? What, what is it? And, uh, <laughs>
0: Well, it's, it's so distinct because I did an episode about the history of uh, American football in Japan, and I yeah. think it, it's it's such a niche following. But the people who follow it, they love it. Obviously, it's not going to be anywhere near the size you're going to see over here. But I, I think when people actually are willing to learn, like a complicated and such a unique game, you know, when you look at most sports, it's very amoebic. The ball is in constant motion. Like football as a sport is just a unique specimen. You know, it's a very structured I, I game that you can't really see yeah. anywhere.
1: I can't believe that there isn't more interest in foreign countries. And I've seen that league that you're talking about in Japan when I was over there, the, X uh, uh, yeah, I guess it was the same one back then. And my college coach a guy named Sarkar Slanian w- uh, coached the team over there after his career in the United States ended. Uh, but it, it's more of a, You know, like uh, rugby or lacrosse would be, where there's a uh, there are devotees of that, but it never has even, well, even soccer has never reached the point that people predicted it would be. Somehow, those games don't resonate. And uh, one explanation that we had in the film was, it was a game invented. Uh, in the late 1800s that foretold television because the shape of the field goes perfectly in television. The, uh, the break between plays was perfectly uh, set up for instant replay when they figured out how to do that. It's the perfect television sport, which... I believe is the reason why the NFL season was so successful because it's like a studio uh, program played outdoors on a field that's shaped exactly the the same way a TV screen is. It could have been invented for television or television could have been invented for football. And uh, I don't know. It's it's puzzling. I tried to get to the bottom of the autumn ritual, and I think I just confused a lot of people. But uh, there, there are people at 3 in the morning, who they've sent me things saying, that's the greatest football film, that's the greatest sports film I've ever seen. Bob Costas told me it was his favorite football film of all time. What time? He said, really, when did you see it? He said, at three in the morning on ESPN.
0: <laughs> well, Bob Costas has said before, too, that he thinks that the NFL films productions are actually more interesting than football itself. We tried to
1: make it that. We tried we produced films for people who didn't care for football. And then we knew that football people would come flocking to it, too. But if, if we could capture the people that were either ambivalent or hated football, and we could make a film that made them want to watch hey, we're in business. And we were in business for 40-something years.
0: Well, I think Steve even said in an interview where it's like when you look at football, the rectangular field is like a, a movie screen. And what's yeah. happening what's happening on the field is, you know, the actions, well, the characters, it. yeah. it's a plot. That's and what I thought, and it's just like when you see uh, kind of like – the artistic influence behind it. Cause you know, most sports films I think are pretty much reduced to highlights with maybe a little, you know, slow motion shot here and there. But I think when you look at football and how cinematic of a game it is, I think along with, you know, surfing and maybe boxing too, you know, those are kind of like the three sports. I think you could really craft like a real narrative around because they're just like, have this sort of um, larger than life appeal to it.
1: Yeah. It was all, we were all football fans and movie fans. And the music was cinema, you know. In fact, uh, we had the guy who wrote most of the early music and recorded it was a guy named Sam Spence, who uh, lived in Germany, in Munich, and used uh, members of the uh, Munich Philharmonic Orchestra to record the bombastic uh, film Films music, which was really movie music. and we would actually see a film and we loved the music and we would send him a copy of it. And he was a genius composer, but he was also a genius of how to avoid lawsuits. So he knew exactly when to change the note, like the magnificent seven, you go. Duh, 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 and then instead of going up, which would have been the magnificent seven, he would go down the register. And so we couldn't get sued, and he he figured that out that out for us. But when you listen to it, it's no different than any uh, Marconi or uh, whoever was, wrote the Magnificent Seven. And uh, we we played off that. And what can we do? Slow motion. What can we do? Uh, ultra violence. What can we do? You know, it's all cinematic um, storytelling.
0: Another film of yours that was terrific was the – well, actually, it's part of the NFL, uh, the Lost Treasures of NFL film series, and it was uh, Pottstown Revisited. Yeah. I really enjoyed that because I actually didn't see the first one originally until I saw a little bit of the second one. And for the listeners who haven't seen, um, Phil had directed this uh, documentary back in 1970, was it? Uh, Seventy-one yeah uh, about this uh, minor league football team called the Pottstown Firebirds and 30 years later in the series they went back and revisited the same town that they had shot the documentary in when you guys came up with the idea to go back what was going through your mind now, did you have expectations of where some of these guys would have ended up were you hopeful that you would see certain guys maybe other guys not so much Potsdam
1: has a, a a huge place in my uh professional career do you want me to tell you how i came up with the idea originally please okay so when i was with the chargers uh i was on the reserve squad back then it was called the taxi squad because paul brown when his reserve players he wanted to keep him around in case there was an injury he would get him a job driving taxis in cleveland and so they called it the taxi squad because all the reserve players were taxi drivers until they got activated. So I was on the taxi squad, and to keep us game sharp, because we'd practice with the team all week, but to keep us game sharp, we would go uh, up to Las Vegas on the weekends when the team was, the Chargers were playing on Sunday. On Saturday morning, we'd drive to Vegas. And Saturday night we would play for the Las Vegas Cowboys of the Western football league. And, uh, and so I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know anything about minor league football. Like most people don't know anything about minor league football because, uh, that is really under the radar. But, uh, the taxi squad quarterback, a kid named Mike Fair from South Carolina, and myself, and Tom De- Dempsey, the record uh, the record field goal kicker who kicked the first 60-yard field goal with half a foot. He was on the taxi squad. And, and then there were a couple of other guys. So we'd get in a van. We'd drive up there we didn't know the offense we didn't know anything that was going on but that wasn't required at that level of football and uh, oh, it was such a a scene you know it was the tobacco road of football with uh you, you had uh bar bouncers you had uh uh broid freaks uh, you had emergency uh emergency uh, hospital attendance. It's just a rogues gallery of people playing on these teams. And they were just people who didn't get enough of football while they were uh, playing legitimately. And so they still had to get it out of their system. And because we were coming together, Mike and I, we just made up our own set of s- uh, signals and we ran our own offense. And I think I caught, I averaged in four games, 15 catches a game, which didn't endear us to the other people on the team because we were kind of playing in, in a separate little organized outcome uh, outing. Uh, but it was fun and it was football being played for the love of it. And uh, there were stuff like the uniforms were mismatched because they, they had to get donated uniforms so they had uh, lime green pants and burnt orange jerseys, and then they tried to they tried to match them up by having a uh, green and burnt orange stripe down the pants, like they were supposed to go together. Uh, and it was uh, it was memorable. Uh, I can say that it was depressing too because we were supposed to be on the San Diego Chargers and instead we were playing for the Las Vegas Cowboys. But that stuck with me and so when I went back to NFL films I uh I just thought you know that would be an interesting piece. Maybe that was the start of my rebellious attitude towards doing the same thing in the same way. But um uh, so we had a uh, I arrived in 1969 and Along with the Blue Ridge Mountain Rackup, we had gotten together to get other pieces because we used to do two or three pieces for all the pregame shows. And so the head of production said, Okay, uh, what other ideas do we have? And I raised my hand. I was the new guy in the room. And I said, We got to do a uh, piece on minor league football because it's such a freak show. <laughs> and the guy looked at me with, all the disdain he could muster, and said, "Tucket, you're in the big leagues now. So this <laughs> is NFL. We don't do minor league football. You got to be kidding." And so, uh, okay, fine. You know, I don't know. You know, and so, uh, so the and then the year went by, and the next year same meeting because they would have the same meeting every day trying to come up with ideas that's where i said we would put bum phillips in later on you know when he became head coach because he was a sure thing and so uh the next year anybody have any ideas i raised my hand i said just to be a, a prick i guess you know we should do a piece on minor league football because it's a real freak show and it's kind of interesting and he looked at me like you got to be kidding me, right? He says, I told you last year, we don't do minor league football. So what What do you keep talking about it for? I said, because it will be interesting and people will see it and want to see more of it. And, you know, is that why we're doing it? To bring attention to uh, the great game of football? So the third year, I did the same thing. And he finally said, okay, you wore me down you can do a five-minute uh, film on a minor league football team. The closest minor league team to Philadelphia, where we were based, was Pottstown, PA. And uh, actually, Steve went up with me because he was interested in it. I think he probably told the production guy, hey, you know, stop harassing this guy and let's do it. So we went up there. And we were waiting in the office. The head coach was a guy named Dave DiFilippo, who was sort of a uh, a Philadelphia legend. He played at Temple. And uh, he was a real character, and he had coached high school and all this other stuff. So he was the head coach of this minor league team. And so we went in, and we had a little pitch ready. And uh, we took turns telling him how great it would be if if we could come up and get some shots and do this piece and promote the team and, you know, all that happy horseshit that you say to try and talk something into something. And then this is a line that Steve would use over and over after this, because it was so successful in this one case. And he said, well, the first thing we want to do in your first game is put a microphone on you so we can record what you say on the sidelines. It's the same mic that Vince Lombardi wore during last football season. And Dave DiFilippo threw his arms out and I said, Stopped right there. You don't have to say another word. Vince Lombardi is God. <laughs> I will do anything you tell me to do. If you tell me to, to lose a game intentionally, I will do it. <laughs> I'll get up on this desk and strip naked and dance for you guys for the camera. Anything you want, I will do for you. You don't have to say it. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody had ever been convinced of of (laughs) participating in a film project that was that enthusiastic. And so, uh, and he talked about the quarterback was a guy named Jim Corcoran, who had given himself the nickname King Corcoran, because he had been uh, quarterback at the University of Maryland. And uh, had a a brief tryout with the Jets. So he was like, uh, you know, he was in the upper echelon of minor league football because he he had been with an NFL team. And he just started talking about all these guys. And there was a guy who was a defensive lineman who was a beatnik and a poet. And so as we were leaving, I remember distinctly Steve looked at me and said, I think we have more than five minutes and sure enough it turned out to be an hour that played the hour before the Super Bowl in 1973 and got tremendous ratings because back then they didn't have the 6-hour pregame show right they would just have a you know like a 15-minute pregame show like any game and so uh this played the hour before the 15-minute pregame show for the Super Bowl, and the juxtaposition of the greatest game on earth and these poor bastards scuffling around in Potsdown because they couldn't give up their dream, it was too good. And that's where we won our first Emmy. And since then, I don't think anybody knows how many Emmys NFL films won. We kind of lost track after a while. After you win a certain number, it doesn't really matter if you have right. any more. You, know, you use them as doorstops. But uh, that, that that was how we got started. And and it, it, we named it Pro Football Potsdam PA. And it went through the season like we'd written the script. King Corcoran was the quarterback until he pissed Dave Filippo out off in the uh, the last regular season game and he pissed him off so bad that he replaced king corcoran in the championship game with the second string quarterback because De would just take but but this is funny because he came to me and he said you know i gotta sit him down he's just out of control but if you don't want me to i won't do it you know if it's not good for the film i said no it's great for the film <laughs> go ahead and then the final game was played in a snowstorm in Hartford, Connecticut. And it was a blizzard going the whole time. And this backup quarterback won the game. And then they, they went in the locker room, which was like a boiler room in an elementary school. And it had the pipes overhead. Uh, uh, it was just what a scene. What an unbelievable. You couldn't, you couldn't construct such a thing. And uh, everybody's crying. and Oh, my goodness. And and that ran. So uh, and that 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 was good for me, because after that, people introduced me as uh, instead of Phil Tuckett, who played with the Chargers, which was kind of their way of saying, you know, he's a wannabe. And uh, Ed Sable hired him because he was a football player. Now they would say, This is Phil Tuckett who directed uh, Potsdam because everybody knew what that was. And actually, there were four times when I thought it was going to get made into a movie. I just, you know, it was right on the edge. And the way Hollywood is, you know, those guys are nuts. And and as I say, the Sables didn't care about that. They didn't want to do feature films. So, uh, but I kept it in the back of my mind. And when I, came up with the idea for lost treasures because I would always think we have so much good stuff that never has seen the light of day. And it's all sitting there in our library. It's right here. that We can go through and find it. Then I knew one of the episodes was going to be returned to Potsdam and to interview some of the players that we had uh, documented in that season. And uh, yeah, it had a special meaning for me, I guess, in several ways. That, uh, in a way, I'm glad that it just lives in the form of the real people doing the real thing, rather than getting actors. I don't think you'd get an actor to play King Corcoran, for instance. Uh, You know, he had honed that his whole life. You know, you weren't going to get, you know, Christian Bale to come in and and do uh, uh, his version of King Corcoran. So Right. And then, of course, it was sad because when we did go back to do that, King Cor- Corcoran has died, uh, a lonely, uh, you know, dispirited man in a motel room. And, but that factored into the story. And, you know, it was uh, it was very meaningful and, and still is to me. And it also is it led directly to football America because that's. That would have been a segment in Football America if it hadn't already been done as a full-length feature.
0: Well, and I don't think doing it as a movie would do it justice because, obviously, as you mentioned, like when you have like the real people working the way they did. I mean, because I I can't remember what the name of the defensive lineman was. That was uh, the poet Joe Blake. Yeah, Joe Blake. He was he was interesting to watch. Cause, and I saw that after, uh, after the coach had fired him or had benched him for yeah. a game, they actually wanted to rerun it again. And he stayed behind to make sure that he got his uh, emotions. Right. And it's like, you just have, yeah, like- Oh
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, it got to the point where the, the featured people in the film were uh, elbowing each, each other out of the frame <laughs> To, to get on camera. And so I, you know somebody might say, well, if you reshot that, is that really a true documentary? And my answer is, the first documentary I ever filmed was called Manuka the North. and it was about uh, Inuit people up above the Arctic Circle. And the hero of it was the uh, uh, partner of the filmmaker. And he lived in New York City, but they he renamed him Nanook and turned him into a primitive Inuit uh, native in, living in an igloo. So I don't know if any documentary is absolutely 100% accurate. And to me, part of it was, hey, the guy came to me and said, I want to redo this because I think I can do it better. Fine. You know, that's real life, too. So. uh it was interesting to have that level of cooperation on your very first film. And I look at it now and can see all the flaws in it and, and, and the look of it and everything, I just didn't know what I was doing, but it's good because they didn't know what they were doing either. And it all worked together. We, none of us knew what we were doing, but we got the film made and it resonated with the audience. And, uh, once again, I got a nice little note from Big Ed saying, "I knew you could do it."
0: <laughs> See, like so, I, 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 think that is just an example of how fact is better than fiction because you're know, the only person, actor-wise, that I think could pull off King Cochrane would be like John Travolta in like early Saturday Night Fever as a young John, and then do like a uh, a Pulp Fiction John Travolta for yeah. who John was in two thousand, uh, Cochrane was in two thousand. The temptation
1: but, would be to go overboard, yeah, because it's almost like th- this guy had to know he was he was pulling a fast one here and playing a part. But no, he wasn't. He firmly believed that he was the greatest quarterback that never got a chance in the NFL. Nobody could have dissuaded him from believing that. And unless you live with that reality, then uh, I don't know if you can you could ever fake it. And he was, uh, I don't know. I, I liked him a lot, but I could see the, the other players on the team hated him because he wouldn't ride on the bus with him. He, he had a Lincoln continental that he would ride to the games in. Yeah. And, uh, he just was always putting himself above the team, which is not a good thing for a quarterback. I mean, that's, that's the Tom Brady story. Tom Brady is one of us. He's one of the guys. He's one of those guys that farts in the locker room just like we do. You know, right. he's not—he's not an elitist. He's not above us. Well, King Corcoran was showing them all the time that he was above them, and so they were so pleased when he got benched for the championship game, and they played their hardest for this backup <laughs> guy, and that's what enabled them to win. So, what a delicious uh, rendition of a team sport and the collaboration that goes on and the delicate balance of those things that make a team that will allow it to function.
0: I think one of my favorite scenes from that movie is whenever he's driving and then he's on the phone talking about, he picked up two hippies.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, they didn't know they were talking to the King. Yeah, I mean, It wasn't for effect. It was, uh, and that, that story, uh, whoever the cameraman was, we didn't even know what that story was, but he started talking about how he was one of the few people in the country that had a uh, car phone. And of course, it was that big brick, you know, yeah. that, that huge, huge thing that, you know, plugged into the dashboard and then you pulled it out and it was the size of your head. But he had a car phone. And, uh, and, somebody called him on that and he told him the story it, it had happened before our cameraman got in the in the car i've had people say well that did you make that up was that just fictional no that was him telling a buddy of his what had happened before they left Potsdown to go on this road trip so uh yeah it was delicious and then one of my favorite stories was an unvarnished thing where john land one of the running backs talked about uh going in to see don shula to see if he could get a free agent contract and and john land was he was undersized he was probably five ten, but really stocky and powerful running back and he said i've been through the drill in the nfl where I know in order to, for them to see what you're made of, literally, (laughs) because there was, there was no combine or, you know, bringing people in and and having them run plays for you. They want to get their hands on you. They want to feel you up so they can see if, if you're got a hard body or what's going on with that. And he said, it happened a couple of times in the NFL where, I felt like I had been violated when I left the guy's (laughs) office because he was feeling me up all over the place. And so I was smart enough that when I went in to see Shula, uh, that I stood, I didn't go sit down at his desk. I stood right at the door because I wanted to escape before he could get his hands on me. And, and, uh, the way he tells the story is that Shula was determined to feel him up. so he. he asked him to come over and see uh, fill out a form or something like that. And as soon as he got him away from the door, he got in between John and the door and started feeling him up. And he said he felt his ass. I, I don't know that <laughs> seems extreme, but uh, he tells this story on the bus ride with all of the uh, disdain, you know, just dripping off his lips as he's telling the story. And this is, about Don Shula, who's, the, who's sainted, you know, in the NFL. But it's real. You know, he's a guy that's got, got filled up two or three times by coaches before they were would sign him to a free-agent contract. They wanted to see uh, what their deltoids felt like. Uh, there were all kinds of things like that. It could have been a three-hour movie. Right. And it's just dumb luck that I was able to get an hour out of it that's comprehensible because i did not know what i was doing i was too early in the business to do a narrative like that i could do a five minute piece about hard hits but that's a whole different story when you're telling uh, an hour story about a minor league football team i was it was it was lucky that the quality of the film matched the quality of the minor league football play and it seemed like it it had been done on purpose somehow, I think.
0: Did you ever consider doing like a three-hour cut because you had footage that of other players who didn't make the final cut? Did you ever think about releasing your own yeah. version?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, that's kind of the way why we revisited in lost treasures. But um, I just think that would have been a hard thing to to pull off and do, do well. People do what they call uh, director's cuts now. And to me, that's more just the ego of the director saying, oh, I had all this other great stuff and I can make it even better. If you happen to see Godfather three, the director's cut that, that Francis Ford Coppola did, it was worse than the original. And that was bad. Because Godfather Three is as bad as one and two are great, right? So there's some something about once you lock it in uh, in place, going back in and trying to reopen it. It can It probably could be done, but uh, are, what are you really accomplishing with that? Because editing is more of what you leave out than what you leave in. Young editors don't understand that. Oh, I can't possibly cut that out. Well, it's not effective for your storytelling. And once you take it out, nobody will know that it was ever in. Only you. Right. And if the story works better without it, why are you fighting for the ability to keep something in that once it's out, nobody who sees the film will ever realize that it was out. That's that's why, you know, there was a whole rage in DVDs of uh, deleted scenes and things like that. And I watch them all because I'm sort of interested in the editing process. But I've never seen one that I said, oh, that was a big mistake taking that out. Because if you like the film and the way it's it's finalized, that thing that's gone. It didn't exist to begin with. And why put that back in? What does it achieve? Uh, So I think that would be kind of like I would look at it is uh, I saw the finished product and thought, well, that's as good as I can do at this stage of my career. And that tells the story in the best possible way I can imagine. So then what I tried to do with the the, uh, revisiting it, was, I did put some things in there that weren't in the original and talking about players and then what happened to them. So that was my version of uh, extending the cut.
0: Did you ever read the book that the journalist who was there at the same time that you and yeah. Steve were? Did you ever read his book?
1: Yeah. Yeah. He He's a uh, a good friend of mine. You know, I talk to him every once in a while. And to show you what a good friend he is, I can't remember his name right now. but. He was, it was Jay, there Acton. Getting it. Jay Acton, that's him. And he was there getting information for his book while we were making the movie. And and I read the book, I thought it was good. I thought our movie was better because seeing King Corcoran is different than reading about him. Right. I mean, you can't do him justice without seeing him in action and strutting around on the beach in his wife beater t-shirt and everything. Yeah, you, you can only do so much. But he did a good job. I mean, uh, I think he had some offers to do a screenplay of the story too, and it never quite materialized. So.
0: I like how when you revisit it too, you also talked to uh, Cochran's son, who was yeah. like a little boy on the beach, like
1: I, Jimmy Jr. Yeah,
0: yeah. It w- it was sad to hear, I guess, how their relationship had kind of drifted.
1: Well, he idolized his dad, but his dad had uh, betrayed him so many times that it was hard, to, hard for him to justify uh, forgiving him for everything that had happened, uh, you know, the way he treated his mom and everything. But he has a shrine to his old man in his house, I'll tell you. So uh, there's still...
0: I think one of the funny stories was whenever he was talking about how he benched 300 pounds, and then his father heard that he could bench 300 pounds. So he's still in a suit, and he goes down in the garage and tries to bench 310 just to beat his son. That was him. Yeah. His, his ego was so fragile. He was always
1: on the verge of collapsing in a heap and always fighting to not be discovered for the fraud that he was. It was, It's tough. You told Why? me one time, it says it's tough being the king. I get up in the morning, I wonder how I'm going to get through the day. It's hard being the king.
0: See, I hear, I hear that. And that's what makes it great that you can't, that this isn't a movie because you can't replicate the actual person,
1: a person like
0: a person like him just has to exist as as himself.
1: He could barely replicate himself. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah. But what a, what great memories. And, uh, I'll think, I just think that that that's where my, uh, everybody has a style of the way they're gonna do stuff. And that's where my style got locked in, is I don't wanna be repetitious. I wanna find that little uh, flashy lightning in a bottle and try, try to capture that for the audience. So, uh, you know, and I think I pass it on to my students because one of the projects we're working on right now is a story about a little town called Rachel, Nevada. Mm-hmm. which is right by area 51 and all of the nutcases that come there trying to rub up against the ufo right area 51 thing and these people are all uh, crackpots and everything and my students uh, I, I told them about the idea i had to go out there and do a story on the town and the only establishment in the town is called The Little Alien, which is a bar, restaurant, uh, merchandise shop, and oh, my goodness, they got so excited, and I thought, yeah, well, I don't have to do the typical stuff. I don't want to do the typical stuff. Give me The Little Alien, and uh,
0: now we got something to work with. now you said that pos sound has like a special place in your heart, and you mentioned that that was the first Emmy, and that usually when you win the first Emmy that's kind of what always sticks with you. Do you think that this is maybe not the proudest that you've ever done or the best work that you've ever done, but the one that always stays with you
1: well, I think it's it's the inkling that I got that I could do the job because up to that point, you know the jury was out. I thought I could, but doing five minute pieces you can't say you've arrived right i had i had to do a full-length narrative before i could say okay this is my profession this is what i do and this is what i aspire to and this is i'm just going to keep doing these kinds of things and and right at that time i thought for the rest of my life i it's weird how Big Ed said one thing that stuck with me. And then every time I was, I got discouraged, I would just say, well, you're going to be doing it the rest of your life. So don't overreact to one uh, situation that didn't work out exactly. Right. Cause you've got the rest of your life to, would, to work it out.
0: Would you say that's the best advice he ever gave you?
1: Uh, what was the first advice that he gave me? So it stuck with me from that standpoint. And he he was like uh, our Yoda. You know, he would just sit around, he'd go to dinner and, uh, you know, here's the owner, he, not the owner because the legal in the company, but the, the boss man, the creator of NFL films. And he would sit around the table with the crew and tell dirty jokes and, uh, and, and, say, uh, rude things to the waitresses and he would just be right in there (laughs) raising havoc with everybody else. And then he would say, you know, uh, you think that you got it all going, but what you got to realize is this, that, and they would say like five things that, yeah, you know what the the guy is, is, is really a guru. He's a, if he was in India, he would be in a robe uh, sitting cross-legged on a throne and there'd be a bunch of uh, hippie Americans going there to to learn at his feet. <laughs> and we were just uh, football fans and he couldn't have made a film better than any of us, but that gave him an insight that was valuable to all of us and uh and so uh, if i did write a book i think uh, there'd be a section of big ed quotes and and pithy uh profound statements that we all learn from and you never you never forget a person like that
2: well the, the that last was... go when ahead go I ahead i left
1: nfl films i guess i would have felt more uh sadness for the era being open ob- over. But Steve died right away. And then after him Big Ed died. And to me I just thought, well that's that's it. That was NFL films All the other stuff was uh as a result of those two guys and they're gone now. So if I would have stayed there and both of them would have died, it would have been worse. It would have been more traumatic. And uh, I just thought that was representative of the good thing that I had done in following my principles. You know, I walked away from a lot of money. I walked away from working on a national level to come into the middle of the Mojave Desert. But I have no regrets at all because sometimes your principles are more important than money. And I could not continue working there given the circumstances. And then the two of those guys died. That just completely validated it for me.
0: So in a career with NFL films that lasts nearly 40 years, if you could go back and relive one memory from that time, what would it be?
1: Uh, I think probably Football America. Because I did a lot of stuff outside of football, as I said. I interviewed a Catholic archbishop at the Vatican who was an exorcist for a film that I produced and directed for TNT called Faces of Evil. Mm -hmm. They asked me if I wanted to do a film about the nature of evil in the world, and I did. That's like a whole chapter in anybody's book. So I did all of those things but it always came back to the reason I went there in the first place. And then my, in my heart of hearts, those were the people that I cared most about because they weren't doing it for money or prestige or they loved the game on the same level that I did when I was eight years old. And I wasn't playing for any other reason, but it was just fun. And I got my first uniform when I was eight and that night, my mom came down to tuck me in in my bedroom, and I was wearing my uniform under the covers. It just felt right. It felt like the new skin—that this is what I was going to do. And and I think football, American is America, is the representation of that. You know, all those kids playing six-man football. Oh, I mean, nobody ever won a Super Bowl and was more thrilled than those kids when they beat their big rival and in the Texas six man football. And uh, yeah, I got to say that. And you picked it out. So good for you. You, you knew it. uh, And I just discovered it when you asked me that question.
0: Phil, it was an honor to talk to you. You're a guy who has a very unique place in the history of football. Your work speaks for itself and it's given football history nerds like me a lot to indulge in so I really am grateful for your time
1: well thank you for your interest and uh yeah keep up the good work let me know uh what's going on in your life and uh we'll keep in touch I like your style
0: I like your style too and it's not a matter of if but when you write the book right
1: oh yeah yeah we this- gotta we gotta get around to that now now I'm all Uh, juiced up to revisit that. So let's see what happens.